Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. So we're going to continue our service with the reading of Scripture. Uh, We're going to be reading Genesis 3, verses 1 to 11. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was Hello. was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the woman, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? There you go. Wonderful. Thanks, Steve. Uh, first off, can we give it up one more time for Emily? Just what a great decision. It was, uh, it was a special evening to be part of. She was doing it with two other friends of hers, like lifelong family friends. And it was just a joyful evening to, to hear their stories, hear their testimonies. And there was words of encouragement given to each of the girls by people that were, uh, whether family members or just like close acquaintances in their life that they uh, were able to be encouraged by. Uh, and it was something that for us as a church, we, we obviously want to celebrate and we hold as a value that this declaration, this public declaration of faith, uh, that what has taken place in our hearts, it's, it's a physical uh, physical representation of, of a spiritual reality that we're living into. And so this is something that happens throughout the year. If you're ever interested in being baptized, I would love to have a conversation, whether it is at a beach with family in, in cold water or a warm water on a Sunday morning that we try to make a little warmer than we've had previously. So uh, <laughs> different spaces, different opportunities, something that we'd love to do as a church. Uh, We are wrapping up our series this week, uh, going through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Uh, I was thinking about it when we were reading Genesis 2. There's there's like three people, three types of people that that watch movies or TV shows. Uh, One type of person that just actually watches it. Uh, Another that tries to figure out the entire story well before the story is over. And the third person is the person who's annoyed about the person trying to figure out what the story is before it's over and not allowing them to actually watch it. Uh, For myself and probably Adriana as well, we probably both fall into category two. I don't think we're the most fun to maybe watch a movie or TV show with. We're always trying to figure out, oh, is that that house in the background that happened three episodes ago going to tell something really particular about the final conclusion of this narrative that has been taken? 
taking us through seven episodes. And now we're on episode eight. That must have been the moment where everything changed. And we, we try and nitpick and find all the little moments. And in Genesis 2, there's one little moment that, that kind of happens. It's, it's, there's like a mention of this thing that is in the, the, the background of our story that actually has incredible significance all the way through. And it's, it's the tree of, of life. It's mentioned in, in Genesis chapter 2 and then kind of brought to more of the forefront in, in Genesis 3 as there's an engagement with it actually from, from Adam and from Eve. Genesis 2 verse 9 says, And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We might use language today along the lines of the tree of knowing what is good and what is bad. Uh, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. And if you remember our text from last week, it then divulges into talking about the different rivers themselves, and it kind of draws your attention away before we come back into Genesis 3, and we hear more about these trees that have a part to play in the whole narrative of the Bible. So these two trees are where we're going to be focusing our, our attention this morning. And in particular, the tree of life, how it is revealed, how it is remembered, how it is replanted, and how it is res restored. Because the tree of life is, is revealed to us for the first time here in the Genesis narrative. And it's simply just said that it gives life. It's literally the phrase that is used. And there's another tree somewhere within the proximity of it. It's in the middle there as well. And it's called the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, like I said, or better understood, the tree of knowing good and bad. And, and what we know is that this tree leads to death. That's what God articulates. This tree will lead to death while the tree of life leads to life. And he says that the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. So what is placed at the very beginning of our story here in Genesis is that there is a choice that is placed before humanity between life and death. And it sits at the center of the garden. It's a question for Adam and Eve and it's a question for us. Which tree will you eat from? Which tree do we eat from? Remember how Adam's name means human and Eve's name means uh, life or living one. So humanity is faced with this choice of whether they're going to follow God's directive, of whether they're going to trust God and receive life. And this becomes, this, this idea of, of the trees and the tree of life and the choice placed before them, this becomes the iconic imagery that is redeployed and recycled and reused throughout the biblical narrative starting in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and all the way through the New Testament. It's, it's so incredible how... The Hebrew Bible cohesively includes this imagery in the story that God is trying to present to us. It's, and it's, it's more unified than I ever thought possible when I was just starting to read and engage in the text in this way. To, to see the different ways how repetition is used in images and in phrases to, to validate and to emphasize 
the true narrative and story that God wants us to hear in the Bible. And so much of it, so much of it is linked back to Eden and the narrative there and this test that that they face, this test of, of trust and of faith and a choice between two trees. When it comes to the Bible, when I see living things in the Bible, other than God and humans, the thing that is talked about the most, funny enough, is trees. If you did a word search in the NIV, you'd pull up, there's like 831, oh sorry, 811, I don't want to overemphasize, 811 occurrences of trees within the narrative. And that, that can be, have some synonyms to it, it can be trees or vines or branches, but that, that language is used 811 times. But that doesn't even include all the moments in which it talks about specific trees, palms and oaks and willows and sequoia trees, all the different variations. That doesn't even include that, include that language. Trees are a significant piece of the biblical narrative. That was the cheer we did for our volunteers this morning. Felt like a little odd thing to cheer for, but we did. Um, and when it comes to which tree kind of sits at the forefront, there's no tree that's more famous than the tree of life in the Bible. Because the tree of life was this iconic image, not only in the Bible, but with, within the ancient world. It was, it was imagery that was used in the ancient Near East civilizations to talk about the manner in which they interacted with the divine as well. Some of the most sacred elements in our, in our text, our, our biblical moments, see the imagery of the tree placed before us to help us better understand what's taking place. And even within the narrative itself, we see how trees come to the forefront. And we're going to talk a little bit about a few of them today, whether it's the burning bush in Exodus, the trees of life talked about at length in Proverbs, or John 15's invitation to us to see the vine and, and be connected to the vine and to hear the words of Jesus in that manner. And in all of these passages, the Bible's providing symbolism of the grander story being told. Something as simple as the creation narrative speaking of how humans come from the ground just like trees. Trees are, are beautiful and they can be a source of, of life just like humans can be. And th this, this connection in Genesis is, is pretty clear. And the author wants us to reflect on, on this analogy, on this metaphor, on this symbolism to better understand what is being presented for us. The, the very structure of the Garden of Eden is reflective of, of the experience of humanity in the relation to the divine. When you look at the, the way that the temple is provided to the people of Israel, how it was supposed to be built, we see that it is similar in its structure where there's a garden and, and there's in the middle of the garden there are two trees and in the middle of the middle is the tree of life. And when you look at the temple that is placed before the people of Israel, we see the courts come to the center where the divine sits in the Holy of Holies. The tree of life sits at the center of the garden and God then invites the humans to eat of that tree's fruit. That's in Genesis 2.16. And then later in the text, it says that to eat of this fruit is to actually experience and to receive everlasting life. Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24. Bruce Waltke says this. He says that the tree of life represents a life that is beyond the original life that God breathed into humans. 
As one partakes of this fruit by faith, one participates in this eternal life. However, uh, eternal life is not the tree's only function. At the heart of the garden, where it couldn't be missed, the tree of life serves as an object lesson of, of sorts. It, it displays the proper flow of life, the, the life of God flowing out for humanity to see. It's revealed in all these different ways in the language that's specific and it's metaphorical. And it wants us to see how important this tree is at the center of Eden. But there are, there are two trees that are referenced in the garden. And we've talked now a little bit about the tree of life, but there's another one, the tree of knowing good and bad. Genesis 2, 15 to 17 says, Then the Lord God took the human and put him into the garden of Eden to work and keep it. The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of knowing good and bad you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat, it, eat from it you will surely die. So like the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil stood at the center of the garden and it, and it produced an enticing fruit. I think there's sometimes an imagery that we automatically play out in our heads that there was a clear differentiation of what was good and what was bad. The tree of life was this flourishing, beautiful tree. Name all the most elaborate and expensive and beautiful fruit hanging off of that tree. And then you've got this sickly, old, dark, dying tree. And you're like, don't drink, don't eat from that tree. Well, of course I'm not going to eat from that tree. But the Bible is really specific. It says both were enticing in their fruit. Both, both, both looked good in the manner in which they presented themselves to be consumed. But unlike the tree of life, God prohibited the humans from taking and eating its fruit. Why? Well, well think about this with me. In these opening narratives of Genesis, God has distinguished that which is good and that which is bad. He has said over and over, my creation is good, my creation is good, my creation is good. Humanity is formed and it is very good. And then he, he actually articulates that which is bad as well. And it was for the man to be alone, for his creation to be isolated. Up until this moment, that which is good and bad has been set by God in his wisdom and out of that wisdom comes the flourishing of creation. Life abounds to the fullest. So the way in which the tree of life is revealed alongside this tree of knowing good and bad leads us to a couple different questions. The first question that kind of comes to my mind is, will humans continue living with God, allowing him to define and teach them what is good and bad? Or will they take the fruit and the power to define good and bad for themselves outside of God's wisdom? Or, or more, maybe more simply understood, what God is providing them is that I want you to follow the way in which I say leads to life and be in relationship with me. Or you can follow your own way which leads to death and its separation from me. And... We, we read the, the story. We, we know what happens. They, they ate of the fruit of tree of good and evil. And they chose, they chose themselves. 
And we're kind of left with this question. Can, can we ever get back to the tree of life? Can anyone ever get back to the tree of life? Because the humans are deceived and they make this foolish decision and they, they eat of the forbidden tree and they, they find out that they're, they're naked and their immediate discovery upon good and evil being known to them is shame. The first experience is shame upon having that revelation of good and evil. And then they're exiled from the garden and in some ways, we can read that moment as extremely severe, like, like a heavy-handed authoritarian approach. But in many ways, that, that moment of exile is, is a severe mercy. Because think about it in this way. To be trapped in a state of constantly trying to usurp God's authority and define good and bad by my own limited human wisdom for eternity... God thinks that's something that needs to be avoided at all costs. So when God exiles them from the garden, this is a severe mercy. Saying that our wisdom is unable to handle the breath of eternity to articulate that which is good or bad. And God says, in the day you eat of it, you will die. But what actually happens? Do they drop dead in that moment when they eat of the fruit? No, no, they... They're still alive. But that language of when you eat of it, you will die. And then the action of exile from the garden partners the two ideas. That exile from the presence of God is the equivalent reality of death. That to be separated from God, to be outside of that space where we can consume the treat of life is death. Exile and death because we're cut off from life. And this text, it, it shows us a variety of different things. One of the things that really stands out for myself is the manner in which our pattern of sin follows this rejection of God and adoption of our own. What happened here in this moment? Eve saw the fruit. She desired it. And she took it. We often articulate the idea of sin being the action. That I'm, I've done something. But this story wants us to see that it begins in our desire. To see it is one thing, but to desire it is another. Desire starts to pull our hearts in a direction that is away from God. She saw it and she desired it because in reality, what we all experience on a day-to-day -day basis, and maybe some of you have an immense amount of, amount of self-control, and even that will fall short eventually, desire rules. And this becomes the pattern of sin throughout the Bible because our desire is then also fickle. And it's easily overcome by the moment. And we might think we're rational, reasonable human beings, but when we're feeling like we desire something, we long something, that's often the first thing to go. No longer are we rational or we reasonable. We live into the desire of the moment and we experience that pattern of sin over and over again. I, I, even those moments, I think we've all had them, where we, where we respond in a situation in a way that we would never tell someone else to respond. Maybe it's with a spouse, maybe it's a coworker, but 
they say something that triggers your heart in such a way that when you respond, you think to yourself, man, <laughs> that was maybe not the best way that could have been said. But then even when we are maybe called to account for it, we're asked to, for, asked to, to take accountability for it, what are we often prone to do? No. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't mean it that way. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't actually say it like that. And we, we are quick to push away blame. And we're like, oh, it's actually not that bad. This is what I said over here. That was a good thing. That was a true thing. This wasn't that bad. And we go through this process on a daily basis where we face these moments of decision. And we're quick to go to this moment of scapegoating. We, we blame something else or someone else for our action. Or we, we attribute blame to someone else to absorb the punishment that we don't want to take upon ourselves. This is the narrative of humanity. Rene Girard is an anthropologist that studies this idea of scapegoating. And he talks about how scapegoating has been a consistent theme throughout humanity. Whether it is nations, people groups, or individuals. We're always looking for someone else to defer the blame to. And it is often through a self-defined definition of good and evil. And therefore it's subjective and it switches from place to place. And, and it makes it all just wrong. Because it causes people to treat one another in a way that sparks pain and violence and death. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil leads to death. I've heard it, I've heard it said when it comes to the Genesis story, well, like, I didn't eat the fruit. <laughs> Eve did it. And you know what? Adam didn't really eat the fruit. Like, Eve, Eve started it. Or, or you know what? Adam made the mistake and he shouldn't have, he shouldn't have eaten it either. We, we want to deter, defer blame so quickly, even when we think about the biblical narrative. And the reality is, is it Adam and Eve's fault? No, hardly. The tree of life is revealed in Genesis, but then in the Bible, it's, it's remembered. It may come as a surprise to you that the tree of life reappears in the Bible in a lot of different places. Humanity has made the wrong choice over and over. Later on in the story, we come to this moment on Mount Sinai where Moses, he goes and he has this experience with God. And there's this desert tree on top of a mountain, this burning bush where God, Moses is told that he's standing on holy ground. It's a plant on a mountain radiating with God's life and power just like the tree of life. And what does God ask him to do? He says, bring these people up on this mountain so that we can form a partnership and they can choose to be with me or they can choose idols of their own. And how does the story play out? Israel chooses the idols of their own. The tree of life appears well throughout the, the story of Israel. It's a symbol within the temple itself. It's incorporated into portrayal of the sacred spaces and even the, the, the golden lampstand is meant to be symbolic of, of a tree and how it is constructed. And this imagery is meant to point back to Genesis so that Israel might remember 
God has given you this invitation to choose him, to choose life, and not to choose death over and over again. But much like Adam and Eve, the nation of Israel faces that choice. And would they respond to the reminders and obey God's commands and share life with the nations around them? Well, no. The story goes on to show that generation after generation chooses gods of their own making. And these idols are often placed on hills. And they're, they're like beautiful trees, these false trees of life that lead the people of Israel into exile and into death. The choice before Adam and Eve is the same choice that every biblical character faces within their own story. And it is a choice that we face in our own lives today. Even the book of Proverbs, when it's presented as, as wisdom for you and I to pay attention to, is riddled with imagery and language around the tree of life and the tree of good of evil. And, and it's trying to teach us how to see that we are sitting each and every day before these two trees needing to make a choice. When we wake up, when we get out of bed, we face these decisions of life and death. It can be hard to fully understand, I think, the, the tree of, of good and evil. Tim Mackey, when he talks about the tree that leads to death, he names it as actually the tree of moralism. It is humans trying to work out good and bad by their own wisdom, and the narrative is all the way through the Bible. Where humanity has this bad habit of using their limited knowledge and wisdom. Usually leading to division, violence, destruction, and death. And the narrative is trying to show us that the tree of death is the tree of moralism. Where the characters are making a choice by their own wisdom. And then we see the implications of those choices. Exile and death. So to eat the tree of life is to surrender my moralistic striving and to pursue God's way in all I do. This is the differentiation that is trying to be established at the beginning and we see people group after individual, after nation, face over and over and over again and find themselves wanting, find themselves lacking. The part of the story that we see in Genesis of this decision that's made. It's not isolated to their context or the narrative. It's throughout the Bible and it's in ours. And then we see what happens in moments where there is the choice of God that is made. There's a, there's a story of Abraham and his, and his son Isaac and they go up on this hill. Maybe you remember the story for Genesis 22. And Abraham has done some awful things up to this moment, and it's not his first son. In fact, Ishmael was his first son born out of uh, the abuse of his Egyptian slave. And then he finds himself with Isaac, and Isaac is the fruition of all his hopes and plans and dreams and, and his faithfulness and his obedience. And then God asks him, would you sacrifice your son? And he, he takes his son up upon that hill, upon that hill of Moriah, again upon a hill, and there's a bush that's there as well. And he gets to the moment where he says, I'm going to make the decision 
decision to follow God's way even when it isn't making sense. And as, a ma- as he's about to strike the killing blow, he's stopped by God because he's fully given himself over to the decision of good and evil as per God and trusts in God's goodness. And God does not do something unjust in that moment something evil, something wrong. In fact, God replaces that moment of sacrifice with a life in the tree, in the thicket that he provides for himself. This, this is the narrative that t- is told over and over and over again. I find within our, our Western tradition that we have gotten to a place where we feel like we hold a high moralistic standing. We feel like we know what's right and wrong. We treat people well. well we, we, we go to counseling and we know how to say the right things. And we feel like once we get to that place that we've got it covered and there is a pride and a self-adoration that rises up so quickly out of this space. I find it for myself that when I make a good decision, I kind of get this feeling of like, oh man, I got to trust my gut more often. Man, I, I really had that put together. And then we get pulled away from this reliance on God. And it's funny that the danger of successful moralistic decisions is that it can often be the first path down to the tree of good and evil. It leads us down this mindset that, oh, I really know what's best. But the story doesn't end in Proverbs. It continues through the prophets. And then it takes us all the way to the story of Jesus. And Jesus, in his most decisive actions and teachings, involves trees. He announces the reign and rule of God. And I want you to remember back to Genesis 1 and 2 and this declaration of the the, the expansiveness and the power of God's authority and his hands in the dirt and the kingdom that he's establishing that's reestablished and this is rearticulated through the person of Jesus and then through Jesus' teachings he talks about the parables and there are these expansive creative teachings on the coming kingdom of God full of garden and tree imagery and we could go through a long list but he's inviting his followers with a similar invitation that we see in Genesis. What does Jesus say? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the the vine, and you are the branches in John 15. In the upper room, he says, eat of my body and drink of my blood. Internalize me. Partake of these things to remember the life that you are filled with when you are in relationship with me. And then he finds himself in the garden of Gethsemane right before his journey to the cross. And he's, he's in the garden of trees in relationship with God saying, if God, if, it, if there is a way, make another way. And he's faced with the decision, am I going to follow my thoughts of good and evil or I'm going to trust in God? And what does Jesus do in this moment? He makes a decision that we cannot and he says, I'm going to trust in the Father and continue my journey to the cross. If the tree of life is revealed in Genesis, it's remembered throughout the Old Testament, it is replanted in the person of Jesus. Because what is Jesus leading us towards? The tree of life that was rejected time and time again by humanity is presented again through the person of Jesus. And what does humanity do? Rejects it. 
rejects Jesus. The way of Jesus is rejected by people and he is crucified on a cross. And the Roman cross of Jesus' execution is regularly called the tree. Pointing us again to this imagery in the Eden story. The tree of life is replanted because Jesus' surrender and obedience does what we could have never do. It accomplishes what humanity could not. The tree of death becomes the tree of life. And it is through the death and resurrection that Jesus himself becomes what we could have never become. It becomes the source of life for all those who place their trust in him. In all these narratives, what this whole thing is about is what if there could be someone who could be so in tune with the desires of God and surrender their life over to him in such a way that even if they faced death itself, they would choose the tree of life. And then Jesus came. And it seems to me that it's exactly almost this culmination of the gospel narratives that the tree on which Jesus hangs and dies actually becomes the new tree of life in his resurrection. Jesus' tree of death becomes our tree of life. And we're asked again, as the invitation was given in the garden, in relationship, in the presence of God, will you eat of the tree of life or will you choose your own way? And through Jesus, this invitation is given to receive life and life to the fullest by placing our trust and our faith in him. Consuming of the fruit of that tree, taking it within ourselves and living with that life, that everlasting life, that eternal life that is offered through Jesus. Jesus' surrender makes that tree of life possible, not my surrender. And the beautiful thing is it doesn't end there. It's revealed, it's remembered, it's replanted, and it's restored because the story takes us all the way through the New Testament to the book of Revelation. In the final two chapters, we see that there is a new garden being planted. And at the center of that garden is a new tree of life. It is mind-boggling to me to see the way in which the Bible so cohesively invites us each and every day. This choice is in front of you. Choose life with me. And then at the end, we will find a space where life is available fully and for all people. Revelation 22 verses 1 and 2 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. As clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." Jesus himself, he hints at this. He, he says that the kingdom of God is here, but it's small like a mustard seed for now. 
And the tree of life is this constellation of image used from the Eden narrative in Revelation to tell us of this garden that will be replanted, restored for humanity to partake in. And in the middle of that city is this tree of life that isn't just there for us to consume, but life flows from it and it's everywhere and it's for all people. That is to say that the God's pursuit of us is so much greater than the decisions that we are faced each day. And every time that we miss the mark, every time we make the wrong decision, every time we choose our own way rather than the way of life, we are not left to our own devices, but we are invited again and again to place our trust in Jesus and find the life that he offers. This is our invitation. The Bible ends in this new garden with the tree of life at its center, providing healing and life forever to all who choose to eat from it. I want you to hear the words of Genesis. Eat from this tree and find life. And then the words of Jesus. Be joined to the vine. And what happens when you're joined to the vine? You actually internalize the life of the vine. And the way of Jesus that lays down his life, that shows us that sacrificial living is the way it internalizes within us and it produces more life. And don't eat from this tree of moralistic standing. That's simply our way. That leads to death. That's, that's to separate ourselves from God. That's to make ourselves God. The scope of the Bible is spectacular. Why do we take time to talk about Genesis 1, 2, and 3? Because we need to see Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to see the Bible at work. To see the story come to life. To see the way that God has been redeeming the world from the very beginning. Genesis 1, we talked about image bearers, this intention of God. Two, and the purpose that we care, represent, and share in the relationship with God. And then here in chapter 3, this invitation that we're given to choose life or to choose death, to choose God's way or to choose our own way, to choose the way of Jesus or the way of the world. Jesus passed the test in his garden where we failed that test in our garden. And his tree of death became our tree of life. Uh, worship team, you can join me at the front as we close. It felt apt in this idea of the tree and what we consume and what we actually partake in that we were going to end our time together in a moment of communion. Hearing that invitation from Jesus at the table to break the bread and to eat it and to do so in remembrance of him. And to drink of the, the, the wine and to do so in, in remembrance of him, the, the, the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ sp sp spilt for us. And to hear those words that in me you will find life. That decision has been missed over and over again, but I have done the work that needs to be done. And I think we're left with I know I find for myself a question of like, well, okay, what does that really look like? And it comes back to that place of desire. The surrender of my life that I define as good and bad. 
and adopting the desires of God, to seek the heart of God, to know who God is, and to make that the manner from which we live our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we are so grateful for the spaces in which we are offered new life. How your pursuit of us is endless. That if this, the biblical story shows us all the times in which we have fallen short, we would also be reminded of all the times that you came and gave humans and your people another chance. That there was no end to it. That even when we chose death, you invited us to life over and over and over again. And for some of us this morning, the idea of choosing life right now feels past the point of no return. As if there's been too many choices that have been made of death. That tree has become too familiar. But I pray this morning that we might that we might have our imagination just inspired to see the way in which you have pursued our hearts from the beginning, invited us from the beginning all the way through, and that through Jesus, the tree of death, that cross, has now become the tree of life. Through his surrender, willingly going to the cross, entering into death itself to overcome it so that life may be found in the very place where death was expected. I pray this morning where we think things are dead in our hearts, in our faith, in our relationships, the Spirit of God bring new life. and give us courage and boldness to pause and to reflect and to think about the moments in which the decision of the two trees is before us. Our own wisdom or to trust in you. Give us the boldness and courage to trust in you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.